Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. This is another special episode of Long Reads that we've recorded because of the Israeli war on Gaza. I spoke to Palestinian academic Bashir Abu Mane about the latest developments. Bashir is a reader in post-colonial literature at the University of Kent and the author of The Palestinian Novel from 1948 to the Present. He's also a contributing editor at Jacobin, who's written many articles for us about Palestinian politics. Before we go to Bashir, we're going to play a clip from an interview with Josh Paul, a State Department official who resigned in protest and spoke to CNN about his reasons for doing so. What makes you say that this is so different to have caused you to have resigned? So a number of factors, the first of which is just the scope and the scale. You know, here we are two months into this conflict and we have seen three times more children die, 6,000 in Gaza, than in two years of Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, We have seen over 50 journalists killed, over 100 UN aid workers, over 200 medical professionals. You know, do you know what it takes to be a doctor in Gaza? So the scale, We've interviewed a lot of them, and it's a terrible situation for the them. The scale of the loss has been astounding. And, of course, my role in the State Department involves approving many of these major arms transfers that are going to Israel right now that are enabling uh, this killing. But th- this is American policy. It's not like these are rogue transfers. This is American policy, bipartisan, decades long. Israel is America's strongest ally in the Middle East, and America provides the most aid in the world to Israel and obviously to Egypt as well, uh, but in in general to Israel. Again, what is so unscrutinized about this? What was so different that made you resign publicly? Well, in all the arms transfers I've been a part of discussing before, including to Israel, uh, there has always been space for discussion and debate. You can raise concerns about how are these arms going to be used? Uh, Do we have confidence that laws of war, laws of proportionality are going to be respected? Uh, Do we have concerns about some of the units that these arms might be going to and their track records? Uh, What was different here was that there was no discussion. There was no space for that discussion. Uh, There was simply an approach of essentially the barn doors are open. And that remains the case. Uh, You know, the Wall Street Journal reported just in the last couple of days that America has transferred over 4000 dumb bombs to Israel, uh, several thousand guidance kits and 45,000 artillery shells. So the bundles remain open. And while I'm certainly encouraged to hear what Vice President Harris said, what Secretary Austin has said, uh, for as long as those bundles remain open, I don't know why Israel would take those warnings seriously. Bashir, thanks for joining us again. The last time that we spoke for the podcast was back in October. It was in the opening fortnight of the Israeli war in Gaza. We're now speaking on Monday, December the 4th. It's Already several days since the temporary pause was ended, there is a renewed Israeli onslaught against Gaza, which is now expanded to southern Gaza. The reports coming out of Gaza indicate that it's the most intensive phase of bombardment so far. Hundreds and hundreds of people have been killed and the Israeli government and the Israeli military at time of recording is vowing to carry on indefinitely until they've achieved what they say is their goal of eliminating Hamas. Now, before going into the details of what's happening right now, 
we were going to discuss some of the media reports that appeared in that period of a few days when the the conflict had paused, which was highly revealing. And one of those items was an article in the Washington Post, which drew upon interviews with people in and around the Biden administration to shed light on their approach and their thinking. And there was a lot to think about and talk about in that article, but two points in particular that I want to highlight. As many people will know, Joe Biden in late October publicly cast doubt on the casualty figures coming out of Gaza. He told reporters that he had no confidence in the accuracy of those figures or that the Palestinians, as he put it, not Hamas, the Palestinians were telling the truth. I'm sure innocents have been killed and it's the price of waging a war, but I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. The White House spokesman, John Kirby, doubled down on those comments the following day backed up what Biden had said. The numbers are not reliable. They're just not reliable. And and I don't need to tell you how to do your jobs, but if you're going to report casualty figures out of Gaza, I would frankly recommend you don't choose uh, numbers put out by an organization that's run by a terrorist organization. And almost as if on orders or on cue, media reports began referring to the Hamas-run health ministry or the Hamas controlled health ministry anytime that they referred to their figures implicitly casting doubt on their reliability. Now we learn from this Washington Post article that Biden himself in private apologized for these comments and retracted these comments within 24 hours when he held a meeting with a group of Muslim Americans. He told them that he was disappointed in himself and he promised to quote do better. However, there was no public retraction of these comments. They still, to this day, stand on the public record as Biden's official view on the subject. Secondly, some of the people in Biden's inner circle, Biden administration staffers, have said that they worry or they feel that Biden has an idealistic image of Israel, which is preventing him from seeing uh, the true face of Netanyahu's government and that he hasn't or didn't really take into account what an Israeli war on Gaza under the leadership of Netanyahu and with his far-right coalition partners would involve. Now, this seems to suggest, on the one hand, that Netanyahu himself is a recent arrival on the Israeli political scene, that he's some kind of outlier that figures like Biden haven't really come to terms with, and not that he is, in fact, the dominant Israeli political figure of the last quarter century, the man who is the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, who has had much greater impact on its politics since the mid-1990s than anyone else. And secondly, it also implies that Biden himself was something of a political novice and not a man who has been serving in Washington since the early 1970s and who was Barack Obama's vice president and had a front row seat all through the notoriously fraught uh, relationship between Obama and Netanyahu. So those were two of the points that I found most striking about that article. And and I wondered if you might have something to say about that and about the other information that we have received about the Biden administration's thinking. So There is something when you look at specifically about Biden's response and his personal ties to Netanyahu and the friendship. 
if you compare those to the somewhat more um, critical is not the word, to the different tone that you get from Blinken around this, that you get from Harris, and now from the defense minister, from the American defense, uh, from Lloyd Austin. There is something very personal, very eccentric in that sense about Biden's very vocal, carte blanche, unconditional commitment to Israel like that. If you put that in the context of the Democratic Party and in the context of the piece you mentioned, there are 70% of Democrats aged between 18 to 40 disapprove of Biden's position on Gaza. So you have to think, given those kinds of statistics and given the discomfort that's being shown, even by Obama himself, around this unconditional support for Israel, how do you explain Biden's position? That is, so there is, I think, something very personal and eccentric about it in the context of, of slightly more cautious voices coming out of the U.S. administration. There is good reason to be cautious, because, especially with someone like Netanyahu, because there seems to be divergent endpoints or divergent plans for the post-war situation in Gaza. So the Americans have a very particular set of red lines around this, which are not Israel's red lines. So the Americans want no changes to the Gaza territory and the borders. They want no forcible displacement of Palestinians outside. They don't want a reoccupation of the Strip. They don't want an ongoing permanent besiegement of Gaza. They share Israel's aim of eradicating Hamas. But these are kind of limits. So there are differences between Israel and the U.S. over Gaza in terms of policy in terms of and in terms of military operation. So the day after Gaza is one difference. And also the American eye on the regional situation. There, there was clear evidence from the beginning that Israel wanted to regionalize the war and also to open a front against Hezbollah. Immediately after that, the defense minister wanted to do that. And the Americans, by moving their ships there, restrained them and is very worried about regionalizing this conflict, especially because of questions around Iran and, and, and Hezbollah, especially because of its trying to manage its regional interests. So that's what makes Biden's very particular position weird. On one level, America's arming Israel to the teeth, sending them bunker-busting bombs. That aligns with the idea that America wants or supports Israel in eradicating Hamas. But on another level, this un- unconditional support is worrying other voices in, in the administration. So one way of thinking about it is that it's eccentric. Another way of thinking about it is that Biden is kind of worried about being outflanked by the Republicans and their support for Israel in this. He doesn't want to be in a position where the Republicans look as if, again, you know, they are supporting Israel and then the Democrats are being much more cautious about this. But this is a, a narrow electoral strategy. It might actually sink him and sink his chances of re-election. He's not actively winning votes using this strategy. He's actually losing votes. He's not winning Republican votes. He's not winning Republican grounds. He, in fact, might lose many states that have significant Arab presence, significant Muslim presence. So it's hard to not, at the end of this, just dub Joe Biden as, as genocide Joe as a result of this kind of position. I suspect that given the voices that are coming out in the last, especially in the last couple of days, especially Harris in Dubai and 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 Lloyd Austin, I suspect the American support will, will gradually, the tone is gradually changing. 
and it and it'll have to account for this new generation of democratic voices that fundamentally disapprove of, of this policy. There is a long, very slow, long-term adjustment that's taking place here, I think. Earlier this week, the Palestinian journalist Saeed Arakat asked the State Department spokesman Matthew Miller if he really believed that Israel was not targeting civilians in Gaza. Do you call the killing of 20,000 Palestinians an atrocity? So, is that, does that befit the term Said, I was speaking to the intentional right. murdering of civilians that we saw Hamas uh, attack, that we saw Hamas commit. I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there is anyone questioning that Hamas intentionally killed civilians. Right. That, is by think, de- let me, that is by definition an atrocity. And you don't think that Israel intentionally killed civilians? We think far when too you many people. Ma- ma- I, ha- I, I have not seen evidence that they are intentionally There's killing not. civilians. We believe that far too many civilians have been killed. But again, this goes back to the underlying problem of this entire situation, which is that Hamas has embedded itself inside civilians, inside civilian homes, inside mosques, in schools, in churches. It is Hamas that is putting these civilians at harm. Bashir, the second article that I want to bring into the discussion now is one that was published by the Israeli magazine Plus 972 last week. It's based on, as they say, conversations with seven current and former members of Israel's intelligence community, as well as public statements from the Israeli military and other Israeli state institutions. And it goes into detail about the targeting procedure for the Israeli military in Gaza. Now, this is in a context where, as we've discussed and as we've heard, spokesmen for the State Department and spokesmen for the US government have adamantly denied that Israel is deliberately targeting civilians. But the information that's been uncovered by PLUS 972 refutes that argument. They draw attention in particular to the concept of power targets, which has been developed and applied by the Israeli military. A power target is a civilian target. Going after the so-called power targets means deliberately seeking to kill civilians in order to bring pressure on the civilian population of Gaza and, in theory, to bring pressure on Hamas via the civilian population of Gaza. So it is the classic definition of terrorism in the widely accepted sense of the term. They also say, uh, plus 972 in the course of this investigation, that the standards for so-called collateral damage have been widened to an extraordinary degree. They discuss one particular case where the Israeli military accepted killing hundreds of Palestinian civilians in a single attack in an attempt to take out a single Hamas military commander. One of the quotes from the article, a source telling Plus 972, nothing happens by accident when a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza. It's because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed. These are not random rockets. Everything is intentional. We know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every home. But other sources go on to say that it's not even a case of the Israeli military having gone after 
Hamas or Islamic Jihad targets and killing hundreds of civilians in the process. They say that it's the other way around, that they seek to find a justification, a target in some way associated with Hamas or Islamic Jihad that can be used to justify an attack when the primary goal of the attack is to take out the building with hundreds and hundreds of civilians there at the time. There's something about the nature of the weapons that are being used, which are reminiscent of Second World War. Bombs, massive bombardment, Vietnam War era bombs, nothing that has been seen in the last 30 years of wars. So the pace of the killing is is huge, unprecedented in the last three decades. The scale of the destruction is is massive. There's a systematic policy of targeting civilians, residential homes. You know, you can see it on, on in the news. Uh, families are totally being wiped out as a result of this. Harming civilians is intentional. It is calculated. It is baked into the kill. So they know exactly how many people are going to are going to be wiped out when they try to target alleged military targets. It's very it's a very permissive fo- policy with a total disregard of Palestinian life. So all, all of this is very clear. And of course, the, the elements of AI are the fact that AI is managing to generate a lot more targets in the hundreds than, than what Israel managed to do in the wars previously is an extremely worrying development. And the scale of the destruction and the effect on the Palestinian population is massive. So the majority of the Palestinian population in Gaza as a result of this have been displaced. There are around 50,000 homes, uh, residential blocks destroyed probably more, probably around 100,000. So it's very hard, you know, how, where are people going to return to? Are people going to live in tents permanently? This is an active punishment of the Palestinian population. So before in the Israel's wars in 2009, 2008 and nine, Goldstone talked about the deliberate policy, deliberate, he says, disproportionate attack designed to punish and humiliate and to terrorize a civilian population. The same thing is happening here. This is wanton destruction of civilian property, of hospitals, of mosques, of of roads, of blocks. This is collective punishment. It's indiscriminate killing and destruction. It's intentional. The rhetoric is also genocidal that you can see coming out of Israel. So when you do that, when you displace this number of population, the majority of the Gazan population, around 1.7, 1.8 million, and when you cut off electricity, cut off gas, starve the population, blockade aid. The aid that's coming in is, is is minuscule compared to people's normal needs, let alone their needs during um, wartime. And you think about the mass atrocities being committed and the ethnic cleansing internally. I mean, this is an event of genocidal proportion. This is a human catastrophe that unfolds every day without without stopping. Nobody seems to be able to stop Israel or to want to stop Israel. So this deliberate killing, there's a way Israel talked about this before and dubbed this before. It talked about it in terms of the Dahia Doctrine, which is a doctrine that came out of its bombing in 2006 of Lebanon, of Beirut, which is to use disproportionate power on civilian areas where allegedly a missile is launched. So it's an intentional targeting of the civilian population and civilian areas in order to launch a military strike. So the question is, what is the Dahia document specifically? 
how would you dub it? How would you describe the Dahiya doctrine in this context? And this the report that came out recently by the investigation by Yuval Avraham was, was very clear on this. And he had one Israeli source talk about this idea of destroying civilian buildings, attacking a civilian population intentionally in order to undermine, in order to push them politically, in order to show that he says that Hamas is not sovereign, in order to show that Hamas has lost control of the population, etc. He talked about it and he quotes it directly. He says, this was a form of a terror tactic. I think this is important. I think ultimately the Dahiya doctrine is a form of state terrorism. This is not the first time that it's used in relationship to Israel. You can look at the letter that was written by Oxford academics on the so-called on the humanitarian, on the humanitarian crisis in, Oxford, in, 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 in Gaza. The letter is dated 20th of October 2030. And it was written to the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and also to the head of the opposition. And there's a very good quote from this that describes this process very well and also uses the language of terror, uses the language of what Israel is doing amounts to terror. They say, indeed, to think that the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas justify the humanitarian crisis currently unfolding in Gaza is to indulge a central tenet of terrorism, that all citizens must pay for the misdeeds of their governments, as well as they are terrorism's central practice, which is collective punishment. So I think we should start talking about, in relationship to Israel, and in relationship to these very permissive practices of, of killing civilians, wantonly targeting and killing civilians, as state terrorism. There's no other word that would describe what Israel does on a daily basis. Israel, even, even Israeli planners and even Israeli sources themselves say that, that this is a terror tactic to punish collectively a population in order to push it politically and to undermine, to sear its, you know, Israel used this language before, to sear its consciousness, to sear a sense of defeat in it, to sear the idea that this population should never in any form or shape resist what Israel wants and that ultimately what Israel wants in mandate Palestine or historical Palestine is what applies. So the, the aim of this destruction ultimately is political. It's not military in any way. It is to tell the Palestinians that they should never be in a position to resist Israelis in any shape and form. And it is to uphold all of this in the name of Israeli security. So, you know, if you tie that with the political changes that are happening in Israel, with Israel's fascistic culture, with the genocidal rhetoric that comes out of Israel, with this idea that only the Jewish people are sovereign in, 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 in Israel-Palestine, there's no one else what this amounts to is an attempt to wipe out the Palestinians, not only physically and, and existentially, but also, of course, totally politically. So it is, it is politicide, which is now compounded by the genocide that is unfolding and taking place in, in Gaza. So it's absolutely correct to say that this is a systematic policy of state terrorism that Israel is wielding on, on, on the Palestinians. It has other effects, of course. The other effects is in the context of, of the Hamas attack, of 7th of October, it, the fundamental aim for Israel in punishing the Palestinians collectively like that is to restore its deterrence, which has been totally shattered. So it also has political aims for it uh, as a state, um, not just over the Palestinians, but also regionally. You know, in the name of Israeli citizens feeling secure, the Israeli state unleashes its, its power with full American support in order to achieve those political aims.
Now, I believe you wanted to speak about an article that was published recently by Tarek Bakoni for Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. And this is part of a wider topic of the strategy of Hamas and the Palestinian national movement as a whole, where things stand at present and where things might go from here. So perhaps you could give people a brief summary of what was in that article and and your opinions on it and on those wider questions. So the article is entitled, it was published in Shabakat and is entitled An Inevitable Rupture, that what happened in the 7th of, on the 7th of October, given what Israel has been doing and the scale of the violence and what has been what it has been, the siege of Gaza, the blockade of Gaza, 16-year blockade, its settler colonial, very aggressive settler colonial policies of displacing the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, its separation of the West Bank from Gaza, it what he describes as the partitionist logic of that, the liquidation of the Palestinian question, etc., that this the violence, that there's something inevitable about the rupture. The violence, he's, the argument goes, was happening anyway. The rupture as a result was inevitable. Hamas had to, so the argument goes, overturn this reality. The fury was expected. And then the question, and there's a debate around this question, did this pay off? What was the political calculation for Hamas? And did that cost that the Palestinians are paying did it pay off, etc.? So I think it's important to think about 7th of October in, in the reality of, of, a, of, of, a, of a political agent, of a leading political agent in the Palestinian scene, initiating a process, triggering a process, which created fundamentally a huge opportunity for Israel in order to execute this is the level i think the level of israeli response given the nature and the scale of the attack and those atrocities uh, committed by hamas the level of the israeli response was entirely predictable so you have to ask yourself again about the rationality of the act itself which initiates an event which is in terms of numbers and the scale of destruction in terms of killing now is much larger than the Nakba. So yes, a second Nakba and more. And you have to ask yourself, is the cost worth it? Right? Is it convincing, as Hamas talks about all the time, that this is the Palestinian sacrifice for the national cause? We have to remember that the Palestinians themselves are ultimately paying the cost of that. Hamas is, you know, there was a very good report in the Financial Times today about this metro city under um, Gaza, which was built by Hamas, three floors underground that protect Hamas fighters and protect the Hamas leadership, etc. And yet the, it is the Palestinians themselves, the civilians themselves who are bearing the brunt of this. It is Gaza that is being destroyed, Gazans that are being displaced, and Hamas, for the moment, remains intact, operative, and fighting. So you have to ask the question, ultimately. It's a very difficult question to ask in these um, decolonizing struggle, but you have to ask when Palestinians look back at the seventh of October attack and and what it triggered the predictable um, response that Israel um, was going to roll out. You have to ask yourself whether this cost is acceptable in a national liberation struggle, and you have to think about the Hamas tactic. You have to think about the nature of Hamas's militarization of of the resistance. This reduction of, if you like, 
the Palestinian cause into a military confrontation with Israel, which is a vastly more powerful army, one's fourth strongest army in the world. And you have to think about that in that context of initiating another massive military confrontation um, with uh, Israel. And there's no, there's no question that Hamas initiated this confrontation. So there is an absolute agency that needs to be accounted for and reckoned with when we think about this historic event and we make a historical reckoning in terms of calculations. So who suffers in this? Who bears the brunt of this? Who withstands the brunt of the occupation and war that's taking place? These are important parameters to think about um, and to consider. I don't think this attack, the nature of this attack was inevitable. I think resistance to the occupation is inevitable because the resistance is violent and it breeds a form of violence. But the scale of the attack, the nature of it, I don't think there was anything predictable about that. But I think a response to something like that would have been totally predictable for Hamas. And I can't see where, where in any way, in terms of either military strategy or political strategy, when Israel is trying to simply eradicate Hamas now, and given time, the West is giving Israel as much time as possible in order to do that, it might well achieve this. It might well have to ultimately do something about the tunnels. It's, anyway, it's, it's blowing them up bit by bit, and, and it has done much of it in the north of Gaza, and now it's moving towards the south and trying to do the same. So you have to think about this militarization of the conflict in this under such catastrophic balance of forces against the Palestinians. The war that we are seeing ultimately makes victims. We see the Palestinians now as victims being killed, as children being wiped out, whole generations being traumatized. 80% of those killed are civilians, women, children, old people. You have to think about that aspect of it, that you are essentially, these are victims of war. These are victims of Israel. These are not in any way agents that this opportunity has created. We are, force ultimately reduces humans to this level. So you, ha- you, have to make, you have to think about those dimensions of this act as being again an act rather than empowering the mass population as totally disempowering the mass Palestinian population. I can't see any agency. Palestinians cry out in helplessness as they are being starved and besieged by Israel, and as they are being punished, bombed and killed, with whole families wiped out. There is a new category of child now, a child that has no no family surviving it, no parents, the child being the only survival in the family. This is an innovation, a catastrophic innovation in Palestinian history. So how you ultimately interpret 7th of October in Palestinian history is, is extremely important. I think it is the beginning of another historic catastrophe for the Palestinians, which is going to be, take decades to um, roll back, not only in terms of public opinion, in the West, not only in terms of the politics of, of the West and trying to contain Israel and to stop Israel from executing a policy of endless war and permanent war against the Palestinians, but in terms of the achievements of the Palestinian cause. So it is a species of military adventurism that has exposed Palestinians to mass destruction. And in that sense, you know, I don't think it was inevitable to make that decision. And again, we have to question the rationality of it. If the rationality of a military act ends up in destroying the majority, vast areas of large parts of the Gaza Strip, 
displacing 1.7 million Palestinians who now will live in a permanent state of hopelessness, I can't see how and when their houses and homes are going to be rebuilt and when they'll be able to return to their houses. And now Israel is executing the same policy in the south of Gaza and pushing them into a corner and trying to eradicate Hamas in Khan Yunis and in the south. You have to ask yourself the rational question of calculation. And I, I don't see the payoff here. I see this as a huge cost on the Palestinians, which which was, considering the scale of the attack, an utterly predictable response for Israel. Israel is absolutely motivated in restoring its deterrence. And given the nature of the Israeli government we have, it will do everything it can to do so. Even if American support lessens, or even if America has to roll back publicly its support for Israel, even if there's more critical uh, language coming out of Israel, inside the Israeli army and inside the Israeli, Israeli state managers, they see this as an opportunity to eliminate any sense of Palestinian resistance for decades to come. That's the opportunity of 7-Eleven that Israel is trying to use, and nothing is stopping them. And it will continue until it achieves the aims of eradicating Hamas and searing in Palestinian consciousness a sense of generational defeat. So Israel likes to say that this is the response to 7 October is about its existence and it's fighting its second independence war. Not at all. The response to 7th of October is about eliminating the basis of Palestinian existence in Palestine. That's what Israel is doing not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. Hundreds of people have been killed in the West Bank since 7th of October. 2,000 people, over 2,000 people have been put in prison. And then you think about another measure. If you think about the hostages that have been exchanged, right? The Israeli hostages released and the Palestinian hostages, prisoners, they released as a result of it. In the week in which that was taking place, Israel imprisoned more Palestinians than it released. What kind of rational calculation are we talking about here in terms of exchange? So Hamas, what Hamas is hoping for in terms of this process is that ultimately by holding on to Israeli males who they say have served in the army, but some of them are non-military, are civilians, and by holding on to IDF soldiers still as hostages, it will be able to get to a point that it will release all Palestinian prisoners in one go like it did with Shalit. With Shalit, it released, Israel released Shalit for over a thousand Palestinians. But what you get from the Israelis, unless this process of not of delaying the release of, of hostages in Gaza creates a huge political crisis for the Israeli government and then the Israeli government falls, etc. But what you see from the Israelis and the, and the conduct of the war ultimately is that Israel is, this is not in any way a constraint on the Israeli conduct of war. Not at all. All the accounts of the hostages that who were released was is that it didn't it didn't stop the bombing in areas that in which they were held. So on some level, this is not a priority for Israel. What is a priority for Israel is restoring state deterrence. What is a priority for Israel is eradicating and liquidating Hamas. And then if it can release more hostages, yes, it will. But it's not a priority for Israel. Israeli state imperatives have always been much more important than what the Israeli population wants. And that's what we see unfolding here. So again, you have to ask the question about the rationality of this operation. And I can't see it. So 
the Israelis, the, the Hamas logic is, has always been in relationship to militarization is if the Israeli population lives in, if the Palestinian population, sorry, lives in fear, then the Israeli population will have to live in fear. Hence the suicide bombing, hence the Qassam rockets, etc. But Israel has found an answer to these rockets, which are anyway primitive rockets, and the Iron Dome catches most of them. So you try to hit Tel Aviv, and the sirens blurt out in Tel Aviv, but nothing really happens. They're kind of ineffective, right? What they do is they give Israel a pretext to decimate Gaza. So again, you have to ask yourself tactically what that militarization is doing. I know it's extremely hard to talk about these things during moments of of struggle and and, and during this, what we're witnessing is is, an, is a mass ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. I know it's very difficult to talk about those tactical aspects and to talk about the politics of the war from the Palestinian side and how it's being conducted against Israel's offensive, etc. But there has to be a rational discussion about whether that is working or not. Considering the costs that you see on the ground, I can't say that this is working in any way. The costs are far too high. And no one, many, there are many, some Palestinian voices that are saying it, but there is, there is also a deep sense of uh, the difficulty of criticizing during times of war, right? So that at the, mo- at the moment, all we have to ask for is ceasefire, yes, of course, and all we want is the stop of war, yes, of course. But you are ultimately dealing with, with a political agent that has taken a decision on behalf of a whole people and the effects of this decision are being witnessed as, be, as we speak. So you have to come to a moment where you think about this rationally, however difficult this is for the Palestinians to think about. So in the grand scheme of things, in the last decades of Palestinian resistance, wedding the Israeli public, tying it into one, unifying it against them never worked. You have to find a way of dividing the Israeli public politically the first intifada managed to do that because it was non-violent, was extremely effective in that way, and it created a huge political rupture in Israel. The Qassam rockets simply don't do that. Attacking Israeli civilians do not do that. So you have to ask Hamas, in what way is this? Is it running the Palestinian struggle? Those questions have to be debated and asked. As a final question, in terms of the issue of time, which you alluded to in what you were saying there. There were two articles that I saw at the end of last week as Israel resumed its bombing of Gaza, which were presenting what seemed to be diametrically opposed perspectives. On the one hand, there was a foreign policy expert from Chatham House, which is the voice of the foreign policy establishment in the UK. It's operating in the space between the British Foreign Office and academic expertise on different regions of the world, like the equivalent think tanks that you get in Washington operating in the the orbit of the State Department and the Pentagon, where officials will go back and forth between these think tanks and direct government service. And he said that he expected as this war resumed, Israel would be on a timetable of weeks rather than months, that the point at which the US and its European allies could continue to support Netanyahu's war was fast going to run out and there would be a sustained effort to bring Netanyahu into line. On the other hand, there was a reported article in the Financial Times drawing upon conversations with Israeli officials who were still in confident, bullish form, talking about this as settling down for a long war 
that will continue into 2024 and indeed into the second half of 2024 until they had achieved their full objectives, which given the scale of the human suffering and material devastation to date after approximately two months really doesn't bear thinking about. So in terms of what we have to to expect, what is going to come, which of those two predictions do you think is going to be closer to the mark? So from an Israeli perspective, it's a long war. Israel needs to be able to show victory, military victory. It needs to be able to say that it has eradicated Hamas militarily and either decapitated its leadership, including um, Sanwar, Dave, etc., you know, the top leadership, or it, it substantially degraded it that it militarily that it, it doesn't function and all it, it, it remains is the functions that it, it is able to maintain are, are just the, the governing civilian functions etc. Those aspects of, of, of Hamas. So Israel will take a long view in this and will, will try to take as much time as possible in order to achieve this. There are two other reasons for that. One is Netanyahu himself and the court case and the pressure on him politically and the fact that sustaining the war and keeping it delays any kind of political reckoning with the mistakes, his political mistakes that he's made in the past with the fact that he was sleeping on the wheel, and with the fact that he didn't do anything to prevent this, left Israel insecure in terms of its border. In fact, the opposite, his policy was to boost Hamas, to empower it as against the PA. So there is that very personal political dimension of Netanyahu, and he's a very, very good you know, petty tactician. He's, he will play it out as long as possible to stay out of this reckoning and not to bear, take responsibility for what's happening now. Um, not to take political responsibility for the mistakes that he's made. So he has an absolute interest to prolong the war and to stay as prime minister. There are other voices, of course, against him now. The hostages' families are targeting him politically and they want him to resign, etc. But it's in his interest to stay. The other Netanyahu interest, or much broader than this, his government's interest, is that what the Israeli government is hearing from the American government about the post-war situation Israel doesn't like. Neither Gantz nor Netanyahu support a return of the PA in governing Gaza. They don't support the empowering of the PA in the post-war settlement because that will come with, Gantz doesn't believe in a two-state solution. He said it himself, right? So that's another reason to delay the war. What the Americans have said that they want at the end of this war on Gaza is a situation where you are able to politically stabilize Gaza, to keep Gaza as one unit, right? To keep the Palestinians within that unit, it seems. Not to have that unit occupied. That's what they said. And also to get to a point where this process of, to ensure that in their language, there's no terrorism in that, within that entity, okay? And the only way for them to do that they articulated, is to bring Abbas's PA in at some point to govern, right? Israel doesn't like that because it means that both the West Bank and Gaza will be governed by the same part of the national movement. And that is against Israel's political plans of dividing the Palestinian camp, factionalizing it, and then dealing with different parts differently. This sense of enclaving Palestine politically and fragmenting it and parcelizing it. 
it also, the American plan also seems to suggest that Israel will have to restrain settler terrorism in the West Bank, which is not doing. It will come with a political cost. So these are two very good reasons, this political settlement perspective that America has in order to find ultimately a peaceful settlement of the Palestinian question, not within the paradigms of a, two-state, of a proper two-state solution, but within the paradigms of, of moving its collaborationist PA um, forces to govern the West Bank and stabilizing it like that. That aspect with what Israel ultimately wants, which is to keep the Palestinians divided and to remain the only sovereign in Israel-Palestine. So yes, the motivation is to prolong the war, to win as much as possible militarily, and to continue insisting, which is the fundamental problem with this, I think, on a moral level, this huge crisis of humanity that we're watching, to continue insisting that Palestinians are killable because Palestinians either harbor terrorists or are terrorists themselves. That just plays to the advantage of Israel. So to prolong that period, is within Israeli interest. How long is is a matter of consideration of many factors that Israel doesn't control, especially around Western support, and especially around American support. The American elections are are coming soon, depending on the situation in the Democratic Party and the prospects of winning or losing. Biden will have to make those kinds of tactical considerations. But there is no question that the Israelis want as much time as possible, and they will take as much time as they can extract from the West without political pressure to do so. In the meantime, what they are doing in Gaza is is genocide. So uh, the West is complicit and America is actively supporting a genocidal policy in Gaza. Genocide, Joe, is an apt description. Many thanks to Bashir Abu Mana for joining us again to discuss the situation in Palestine. You can find ongoing coverage of what's happening on the Jacobin website.